Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. I am your host, Robert Rogers, from the one and only Parkinson's Recovery. I founded Parkinson's Recovery in 2004 to provide support, information, and resources to any and all persons who currently experience the symptoms that are associated with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease as well as all of their loved family members. To get more information about the many, many resources, most of which are free, that we support and provide, visit the main website, which is the portal to the many other websites that we maintain. The main website is easy to remember. It's parkinsonsrecovery.com. So www.theword-parkinsons combined together with the word recovery.com or to spell it out, www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. There you'll see links to the blog, to the radio show, to the symptom tracker, to the many other resources that we support and provide. Parkinson's Recovery is dedicated to identifying the many options that are helping individuals with a current diagnosis of Parkinson's disease reverse those symptoms. The good news for everyone today is that these are exciting times. More and more options are emerging that are helping people reverse their symptoms. Nope, it's not an easy road to travel down. Recovery is not a simple matter, but more and more people are figuring out what it really takes to reverse those symptoms. My guest today is an individual that I have been recruiting to be on the radio show now for over one long year. Many people have the idea that guests simply appear and we do the show and it's a pretty simple deal, but the reality is it takes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes years to prepare each of these shows. You're going to now be dazzled and awed by the information that Mark Keister will be sharing with you. It's an amazing interview with an individual who has 40 years of experience working with individuals who do have neurological challenges as well as other individuals who have chronic conditions. His specialty winds up being something that I've never had an opportunity to expose to my audience, and that specialty is something called Ayurveda. What is Ayurveda? You're about to find out. Hang on to your I'm your host, Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and my guest today is Mark Keister, who has been working with clients now for over 30 years, doing something called Ayurveda that some of you I know have heard about and some of you haven't. Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on the radio show today. Hi, Robert. How are you today? I'm wonderful, thank you. So, I know some people are familiar with Ayurved or Ayurveda, and some people aren't. Could you take some time to just explain to people what in the world this is? Sure, sure. Well, Ayurveda is a, what they would call a, an Upaveda. It's close to 
uh, a body of knowledge that, as far as we know, is the oldest body of recorded knowledge uh, on Earth. And it comes from the area that we call uh, northern India today. Um, Ayu means life, and Veda means knowledge of. Uh, so it implies very clearly in that uh, expression that this is the, the knowledge of the science of life. And the philosophy behind it is to increase one's life and to increase the quality of one's life so that we can gain the maximum through our lifetime. And maximum means happiness, wellness, well-being, etc. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how they define health. It's called swasta, which means happiness within. And that happens when our senses are fully functioning when our excretory system works properly, uh, we're full of happiness and bliss, contentment, when we're rested, that sort of thing. The uh, more recent knowledge is about 5,000 years old, and it, the science of medicine in Ayurveda uh, covers virtually every aspect that we uh, commonly practice, from psychiatry to obstetrics. Uh, including surgery. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if you spoke to a plastic surgeon, he would tell you that the father of plastic surgery or rhinoplasty is a Shushrut, who was an Ayurvedic physician some 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. Even today, they use, uh, I think it's 127 surgical instruments that were described by Shushrut some three, 4,000 years ago. So, uh, and a scalpel, and I'll get off surgery here, uh, a scalpel should be sharp enough to split a hair lengthwise into four sections. So they had a very clear and deep understanding long, long ago. Uh, and as in uh, the case of rhinoplasty, have influenced modern medicine and modern philosophies in many ways that we don't realize, just being lost in the obscurity of time. So when we talk about people, we talk about, uh, well, excuse me, I should say, when we talk about disease, we are more concerned with who has the disease than what the disease is. In other words, we don't label so much uh, Parkinson's, for example. We speak to uh, the underlying constitution of the person who has these uh, conditions manifest in their physiology or their consciousness. So the approach is a little different. And in Ayurveda, we look for uh, what would be called the root cause of the disease, the root place where there's an imbalance in the system. I hope that's helping you. Well, it is indeed. Now, you say this came from India, or the body of knowledge uh, many, 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 many years ago originated yes. in India. And yet, by your accent, Mark, it doesn't sound like you're Indian. How did you get on to this 30 years ago? Well, actually, it's been uh, 40 years now since I've been involved uh, in uh, Vedic sciences. And it stemmed from my own interest in medicine initially. Uh, when I was younger, I had wanted to be uh, a medical doctor. And as I was growing, and uh, I realized later a little, later, a little uh, precocious for it, but uh, I used to read uh, medical journals in the library and that sort of thing. And I discovered, uh, just through perusing these articles, that 
there was a, a common statement that physicians were making amongst themselves, and it essentially was this, that 80 or maybe 90% of what they were treating was psychosomatic in origin. And I was maybe 12, and I, I was staggered by this, because that sounded to me like they were saying that somehow in the mind we were creating our, our diseases. Yet in further reading at that age, age I couldn't see um, where they were actually talking about that. They were saying, well, we'll give them this pill or that pill, and the symptoms will reside, and that will be it. And I, I was at a great loss. And as I went further along in my uh, pursuit of wanting to become some sort of a, a practitioner, um, I decided that medicine wasn't the route, that I wanted to go into psychology. And specifically, I was studying uh, what we would call uh, abnormal psychology. And I was working in uh, mental institutions and noticed there seemed to be a great correlation between people's inner life and the contortions and the movements within their physiology. And about that time, I uh, was introduced to uh, the word Ayurveda, along with several other more contemporary Western approaches to uh, psychosomatic medicine, if you will, uh, from uh, Alexander Lowen and uh, Wilhelm Reich. There's a, a science called bioenergetics, which looks at uh, how we, in Reichian terms, armor the body or protect ourselves and our emotions by stiffening and uh, holding our body in certain postures of defense. And their approach was more uh, breaking or piercing the armor, armor to uh, release emotional content, for example. And as I uh, pursued these things further, I discovered in Ayurveda this notion that, though it was whispered about amongst physicians in the West, was a fundamental tenet of Ayurveda, which is uh, they... They classify diseases and how we become ill. A broad umbrella is called pragna aparad. And what it means is the mistake of the intellect, which binds emotions and events. And when they're bound, they're stored within the physiology or the body-mind matrix, if you will. And once there, they're, they're like psychophysiological cholesterol. Uh, more and more collects in that area, it could be uh, in the nerving system of the body. It could be in the digestive system. It could be in the lungs. It could be virtually anywhere. And that becomes the seats of disease. So this intrigued me very much because they weren't, uh, they weren't denying this. They were putting this at the forefront, or they weren't whispering about it. This was the key understanding of resolution of disease to reinstate what they would call swastha, that balance of body, mind, and spirit, where one feels uh, happy, whole, and full. So uh, that was uh, the beginning of my pursuit. I also happened to be very fortunate in uh, moving into the mountains uh, in uh, the uh, Oregon uh, Cascades next to a swami who was a practitioner of Ayurveda. And this was uh, 40, 45 years ago. So I got a very quick and uh, strong
strong introduction and have been hooked ever since. And have been then introducing this approach to wellness to many, many individuals over these 40 years. Yes. Yes, uh, that's uh, clearly my life's work. I, I, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing someone who is pinched in some way let that pinch go and bloom. And that those qualities that, that we think of, of happiness, wellness, uh, contentment, acceptance, they aren't uh, concepts, they're experience. And once people have that within themselves, whatever their uh, malady, it first of all, it recedes. And uh, I'm not saying that everyone that I've ever encountered with Parkinson's has gotten better. That's not the case. I am saying, though, that, that once people adopt a certain rhythm of behavior, their experience of life changes. And I, bar none, I have I encountered someone who has not been greatly appreciative and had some improvement from the adoption of uh, an Ayurvedic approach to their wellness. It sounds then like you have been seeing a number of individuals with neurological symptoms, and while results tend to be a bit scattered here and there, you have been seeing good results for some people. Well, I would say positive results for everyone. Uh, if they've, I, I, I should backtrack for a moment. Not everyone who comes through my door comes back. Those that come back receive benefit, and I can measure that from uh, you know a small percentage to a very great percentage, and they would all say the same, that the more they practice, the more they adopt these things, the better they feel. And yes, uh, there are people that, that don't seem to benefit, but they, uh, again, are the ones that don't come back. The beauty of it is that it's a self-validating system. Now, there are a range of treatments and, and options available for people. Uh, one treatment regimen is called Marma Chikitsa. Uh, you're familiar with acupuncture, yes? Yes, I think, and most uh, listeners are as well. Yes. Well, in acupuncture, you use these uh, bioenergetic uh, connectors in the body. The same in uh, the Ayurvedic approach. Only the number and the uh, understanding of excuse me, is, is, is a little bit deeper. Uh, these points are called marmas, and the subtlest of them are called nadis. And there are 35 million of them. They're junction points where consciousness and matter meet to form physiology. Essentially, we're, we're porous. We... Um, we're a breathing entity that loses, I think, in 18 months, I believe the figure is, all of the molecules of the body are new. There's nothing in the body that was there 18 months previously. We're constantly interchanging and moving within our environment, yet we can see that scars hold true, uh, our normal physiology holds, although it obviously changes through time, Something holds this thing together, yet it is a porous entity. 
proportionately proportionately is is empty is uh, intergalactic space. We have that much space within our body. In Ayurveda, they speak of space in two forms. They call it sukha, which is good space, or dukha, which means bad space. So in measuring a disease in someone, it's the orientation of the body to uh, the element we call akash, or space. And the, the space uh, affects our moods. It affects uh, the transmission of, of uh, information through the cells. It affects our neurological uh, functioning from the base of our foot to the crown of our head. Uh, and actually beyond, you know, we have this bioelectric system that we can now measure as exceeds the body as we see it by several feet. So this whole bioelectric system is affected by what's going on in our internal experience. And vice versa, what's happening outside affects what's going on within our own body-mind matrix. So again, we're an uh, interactive uh, being that is not uh, isolated from the environment. We are porous, things flow through us. When they don't, they call these places clashes or sticky points. I think I called them uh, like psychophysiological cholesterol earlier. These very tiny particles of things. It builds up as resistance builds up, calcification builds up. I mean, emotional resistance, uh, psychological resistance, physical resistance. All of these things start to work on the body and the mind and the spirit uh, and essentially uh, create these, these nuclei for our diseases. So in Ayurveda, what we look for are ways to dissolve these things, to, re- to have them leave the body-mind matrix. And one method is through Marma Chikitsa, which is bringing attention to these various uh, subtle points in the body. And just the mere application of our awareness coupled with a rhythm of breathing facilitates release. The experience within the, uh, the client is one of uh, greater fluidity, uh, a greater sense of openness in their body and their mind, less tremors, the ability to walk uh, with uh, greater ease, all of these things come from a very, very simple procedure of, um, for lack of a better word, working through this, uh, these point systems within the body. You know uh, the word yoga? Mm-hmm. Yoga is part of Ayurveda, and they all come together out of this, this great body of knowledge. In yoga, what we call yoga is uh, an aspect that is called asana, or posture. And the word itself, yoga, means to to unite or to bring together. And ah means the activity of it. So it's the activity of uniting or bringing together. What you bring together is some sense of movement, awareness, and the breath. Those three simple little things put together without strain facilitates kind of wringing this sponge, this porous, membranous thing we are, squeezing it in a way to release the toxicity that's held subtly 
in the tissues of the body. It doesn't take analysis. It doesn't think, oh, now I'm twisting my body this way and I'm squeezing this out and now it's moving with my breath. No. It's simply being aware of how we feel as we do this movement and connecting it with the breath and that sense of, again, for lack of a better word, being present in that moment. You know, we're very funny creatures. We, um, we come to this world and we cry and everyone laughs. We leave this world and we sigh and everyone cries. And in between there's nothing but the breath, nothing that is continuous but that rhythm of breathing. And yet we pay very, very little attention to breath. So in using Marma Chikitsa, we bring that little bit of awareness of how our breath is, what's going on, and coupling it with uh, just some sense of what's going on in that, that little tiny part of our physiology, and that causes a release. And once that's released, there's a, a, a little bit more brightness to our awareness. There's a little bit more uh, alertness, you could call it, fluidity in the body. All of these things come just from a very spontaneous kind of blip, a release. Uh, other therapies that work out of Ayurveda, very successful. Dietary changes, changes in um, rhythms of behavior. Uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time cheating sleep. It's very important that the body be rested and alert and follow more of a natural rhythm, not going to bed at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, but going to bed uh, with nature, going to bed at twilight, getting up in, at twilight. We're the only animal within uh, what we know of as creation that, that seeks to move itself out of natural rhythm, that constantly is pushing that envelope. And I'm not suggesting that we go back to uh, living in caves. I am suggesting, though, that if we come closer to understanding that we aren't isolated from nature, that what goes on outside also affects us inside and vice versa. You are listening to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. I'm your host, Robert Rogers. Mark Keister mentions the incredible impact that our mind has on our ability to recover from whatever symptoms we might currently be experiencing. It is clearly the case that over the past eight years, I have devoted considerable attention to identifying the factors that cause neurological symptoms and the treatments and options that are helping individuals reverse those symptoms. Much of my work also has centered and been devoted on identifying those unconscious thought forms that obstruct our ability to recover. I've actually generated two books to support individuals who'd like to be able to release all of those sticky points in those spaces in our body that are obstructing our ability to recover. The first is Five Steps to Recovery. 
and that looks at the beliefs that are obstructing recovery. The second is a book that I just released a few months ago. It's called Language of Recovery. This looks at the very specifics of the words that we use that give us clues about unconscious thought forms that actually are impeding our ability to recover. You can get information about both of those books through the main website. Well, you'll see links to each of them. And again, the main website is parkinsonsrecovery.com. And now back to Mark Keister. Mark Keister, then. Tell us all, when a person comes to see you for a consultation, what exactly happens? Do you set aside appointments that are 10 minutes long, or does something different happen? Uh, well, typically... Uh, an appointment is about an hour, sometimes 90 minutes, sometimes a little less, but usually it's about an hour. Um, we take a fairly uh, comprehensive history. We do many of the things that a physician normally would do. We uh, take the pulse. We listen to the chest. We ask questions. We listen to answers, and maybe that's a little different than what the a modern physician is doing. Uh, I'll digress for a moment. Uh, they did a study in Sweden not long ago, and they discovered that when a physician spent two minutes longer with their patients, the statistical difference in improvement rates was quite significant. Two minutes. Wow. So I, I that goes to one of the themes, I think, that, that uh, is the case in all diseases is the, the diseased person, and I emphasize it is lack of ease in that person. You know, and this is particularly true of neurological issues. The, the, uh, the discomfort that people feel uh, is classic of a, um, what we would call a vata imbalance, which is that imbalance of air and space. It causes anxiety, it causes tremors, it causes uh, mental confusion, lack of clear memory. Uh, all of the very typical experiences of someone with Parkinson's. Slurred speech, I could go on, but they're all very, very common within what we would call a vata imbalance or an imbalance of air and space. So when someone comes, we uh, do a physical exam, we take a history, then we talk about, uh, uh, well, I, I should say that, that doing the exam, we take the pulse. And one of the, the crowning glories of Ayurveda is the system of diagnosis through the pulse. It's called Nadi Vignan. Vignan means knowledge of, and Nadi is, again, it's these these small little places, but it also means knowledge of a river flowing. And remember earlier I said that, that we were sort of porous. Well, we're, we're continually in movement, too, that, that things should flow through us. And when they don't, we go back to talking about these clashes or these sticky places. That's also, what, in part, what's read in the pulse. We have uh, many different layers of pulse that we examine. So uh, we can tell uh, in the organ pulse where there's a, an imbalance in which organ. 
and what type of imbalance it is, et cetera, et cetera. Often, and I, I hesitate to be uh, too specific because, again, it's who has this disorder. It's not so much what the disorder is. So there is uh, certainly an overlay of treatment modalities and regimen, yet specifics for each person may be different. So I don't want to be saying, you know, that, that everyone with uh, Parkinson's should follow this diet or exhibits this symptom uh, within this organ, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not that way. So um, that is a little bit of a preamble to say that, that we, we have uh, uh, great success in treating with uh, uh, herbs, with uh, Marma Chikitsa, with changes in lifestyle. And this includes uh, the practice of meditation, uh, incorporating yoga or some other forms of, of non-stress inducing exercise. This is a, a departure I would make on yoga. You know, often in the West, we have a tendency, you know, uh, we're conditioned very deeply to believe to acquire any success in life, we have to sweat blood. When, if you talk to most people, and they're telling you to go to work, they're going to tell you to work very, 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 very hard. And if you don't work very, 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 very hard, you're never going to get anywhere. Well, that is a difference, uh, again, between a Vedic approach and what we're normally conditioned with. It's not effort. It's letting go of effort. You know, we have a great capacity within ourselves that we don't realize modern science will tell you, modern neurological science says that, that we're using maybe 2 or 10, 12% of our brain. What's that other 98% or so doing? It's sitting there dormant by and large, or it's sitting there uh, keeping in suppression uh, thoughts and emotions that uh, need to be expressed. So Part of, uh, part of release in an Ayurvedic approach would be structuring um, a metal press uh, procedure, a meditation technique that is effortless, a yoga practice that is effortless, and learning to do effortless breathing techniques. I really have uh, come to appreciate greatly uh, Sanskrit as a language. You know, uh, if you look at most words in our dictionary, they'll have a root, and the root often is Indo-European, which ultimately translates back to strictly to Sanskrit. It's a very old and very knowledgeable language, keeping consistent with name and form for its meaning. So the breathing exercises uh, we could call neural physiological integration, but in Sanskrit it's called pranayam. Prana and yam. Prana means life force, and yam is, uh, has two meanings. It means house, and it also, yama, is the controlling entity between life and death. So it's showing very clearly in the word how important 
infusing the body with prana or life force is. Body is our house. We don't breathe, we don't live. We can go four minutes without air and days and weeks without food. So going back to using some breathing techniques, teaching easy, natural, again, the word sukha, techniques to bring good space to the body and mind. Very cleansing, very easy, very purifying, without effort, without analysis. If I were then a client who came to see you and we had some discussions and you did an analysis of my organs and, for example, let's say you found some sticky points or calcification in the pathways to my gallbladder perhaps and my liver, for example, then after that you would then make some, so to speak, prescriptions. And one of that would be you would teach me some breathing exercises that would be simple for me to do. You would teach me perhaps a little yoga to do or refer me to uh, yoga practice. And you would teach me how to do some meditations and perhaps make some uh, bags of herbs that I would take home. Would that be a fair summary of what would happen? That and some dietary recommendations. And the, the yoga, the asanas, the postures, are one specifically, as in the case of gallbladder, to activate and to, to stimulate proper functioning within that region of the body. So they are very specific, uh, and they're, they're to be done uh, individually. So they're, they're things you take home and can practice. You don't have to go to a nice yoga class someplace, though they're great and pleasant, uh, but really to have a personal practice is very important. And this goes to part of this thing uh, that we're talking about, is adopting more of a natural rhythm. In Sanskrit, the word is called the dinacharya. And acharya means moving with, and dina means the day. So, you know, if you look at all of nature, all of nature is a pulsation, a movement, and it all has a direction to it. That's one of the things that we check when we're uh, uh, taking the pulse, is direction. It's called deek. We want to know the direction the pulse is moving. We want to know the direction of people's thoughts, the direction the disease is going. Back to the food, uh, we would recommend diet that would be uh, conducive to that particular person's constitution, avoiding certain foods. Um, You know, one of the things that I found is very, very common uh, in Westerners is, uh, and it's a very delicate subject for most people in the West, is to talk about their bowel habits. You know, the uh, need of removing toxicity from the body is great. We live in a toxic time. And most of us have uh, grown up on uh, one degree or another of an American diet or a Western diet. And as we speak, it's getting more and more toxic all of the time. So uh, toxicity builds up within the tissues of the body. There may be a a prime cause, we could say, in terms of uh, this mistake of the intellect, but the overlay is environmental pollution and obstruction from the, the uh, well, just the, the stress of life. You know, uh, if you think about it, and we don't very often, look how fast we're going. People walk down the street and they're talking on the phone and they're 
eating their food at the same time, and maybe they're actually checking their mail while they're talking on the phone and eating their food. So to bring people back into more of a natural rhythm, I'm not saying again to go to the Stone Age or to uh, be a Luddite in some way. We, we have to live in the environment that we're exposed to. We have to also learn ways to do that. You know, that's one of the beauties of us as people is that we are a very adaptable species, and we just have to learn how to adapt. The beauty, again, is, is that uh, the knowledge of how to adapt has been around for thousands of years. Uh, if I had the time, I would dig up uh, a couplet and read it to you that was recorded what well, was written down almost 4,000 years ago in a text called the Charak Sabhita, and it talks about what to look forward in the changes of, of, you could call it a cosmological season, an era. And by era, I could talk, if we just look at the technological era and how fast we've started to move in the last 50 or 100 years, you know, the difference from a crank telephone to someone's uh, device on their wrist today is infinite. So when things pick up speed like this, certain things start to manifest within the people. And when that happens, you have to do certain things to correct that. This, is, this goes to kind of the public health aspect of Ayurveda. They recognize that there's things that happen in the environment that affect everyone and that you need to learn to adapt to your environment. Just the same as you know if it's raining, you would uh, be better off to carry a, at least an umbrella and maybe a coat, too. It sounds to me, then, what you're saying is that if people who currently experience neurological challenges are serious about getting well, they actually do have to take some responsibility and make some changes in their life. Yes. Uh, the simplest answer, of course. It's, uh, it's the simplest, it's the easiest to do, and it's the most frightening for people to approach. Often we look at ourselves and our behaviors, and we identify with our behaviors as to who we are. And we are not our behaviors. We may do certain things, but uh, it doesn't mark us as to who we are at all. You know, most people, if you, well... If I came to you and I said, uh, Robert, who are you? Most Roberts uh, would say, well, I am a dentist or whatever my profession is, and uh, I have this kind of car and this wife and these children and this house and, you know, maybe this mistress on the side. And if you spoke further to them, they would tell you that they're not happy with any of those things. Most people wouldn't say, well, I'm a divine manifesting principle of the absolute which is far more close to who we are. You know, um, often in, in uh, oh, a popular belief is, is that we are responsible for our behaviors or our experience in life. In Ayurveda, we would say we are partially responsible, and the rest is up to the rest of nature. You know, uh, uh, a rose is a flower and a thorn and a hard stem, and through it all flows a very colorless sap, undifferentiated. 
it's up to us where we put our attention, whether it's on the rose or on the thorn. And what we put our attention on grows. We have a thorn and it can hurt, or we can have a beautiful rose. So it's the same sap that flows through all of it. Some of the guests on the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Show do introduce certain approaches and therapies that sound like they do have wonderful potential and have provided relief to individuals who currently experience neurological challenges. But those are very expensive at times. They can cost into the thousands and thousands of dollars. It sounds to me like the type of recommendations you're making, moreover, breathing, yoga, meditation, diet, could potentially cost very, very little, if not anything at all, right? Do I understand that correctly? We're not talking about an expensive program of recovery here. No, no. Um, I should qualify that a bit. Uh, to, To see a practitioner of Ayurveda here, they have to be licensed, and they have to meet certain requirements of another profession, perhaps, and uh, so there is an incumbent expense built into our our culture. But as far as the treatment regimens, uh, no, not at all. Very easy, very effortless, maximum benefit. We'll be right back with Mark Keister after this short station break. I'm Robert Rogers, the host of the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Show. I have good news and bad news for you. The bad news is that we have actually already held the 2013 Parkinson's Recovery Summit in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The good news is that we took videos of each of the remarkable and stunning presentations that were given at the summit. Those videos are now available as DVDs. So if you feel like you missed out and weren't able to attend, you can also actually see what was presented by simply acquiring some of the DVDs. You'll be able to see what's being offered as DVDs by simply going to the Summit website. And that address is www.summit.parkinsonsrecovery.com. We've got 19 DVDs and basically captured everything that happened. Obviously, if you couldn't come, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of the many wonderful therapies that were offered to the participants. But you'll be able to see the content that was delivered by experts who are offering lots of options that are helping individuals reverse whatever symptoms they might be currently experiencing that are associated with a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And now back to my incredible interview with Ayurveda specialist, Mark Keister. Mark Keister, tell us all about your specific experience with individuals who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Well, let's see. They're all different. Uh, I guess it's the, you know, people come at different stages in, in uh, I like your word, in, in their recovery. Uh, the, the first thing that, that I encourage people to do is, I get the 
word that comes to mind is acceptance. You know, we all go through stages. It, it happens in, in every process from birth to, uh, to death to, well, addictions, anything in between. We go through stages where, one, we're in denial, and then we're angry. And then we have these other stages, too. And the, the, the ultimate we need to come to is the stage of saying, okay, this is what's going on. This is what I have at the moment. Not this is a permanent state. This is what is going on at the moment. You know, uh, I was saying earlier, we're, we're so powerful in our attention, we don't realize it. This either other 90% or more of, of our, for lack of a better word again, unconscious, is functioning. We just don't realize it. And its application is, is constantly shaping our world and our worldview and our experience. Coming back to what this means in terms of treatment of people, that we're essentially, we're changing, one, we're delinking emotions from events. Most people, when they come to understand that they have uh, a part to play in their recovery as well as a part to play in the disease itself, they stumble a little bit. One, they feel guilty, and guilt will paralyze you. It will hold you in this place again. You know, all of, all of our experience is, be, is based upon memories, impressions, and desires. Everything is based upon those things. And an overlay of what we in the West would call guilt or responsibility. And they're, they're too entwined. In, in Ayurveda, we don't look at guilt. We look at mistakes that may have bound emotions and events. They may have generated these things. But we correct mistakes. It's very hard to get over being guilty. So uh, one of the things that we start with is, is getting people to accept that they have an imbalance and that they have some responsibility in structuring that imbalance in the first place. And it didn't happen overnight. It isn't going to leave overnight. And they have responsibility for doing something to remove these impressions from the body and the mind. So the experience with people is, like I say, it's been, uh, depending on when they come, uh, what treatment I would start with. And their level of acceptance is the prime start. It is the fundamental. If, if we can't have some understanding of that, if people feel that they're being victimized, that they're a football being tossed around by events, there isn't much that can happen until they come to the ground. And it's it's okay. The ground isn't so hard. It's a really, there's a great relief. Just the same in all of these other uh, states of denial or resistance. It's the same there. Once you accept, there's a release. And that's when healing starts. So I would recommend... Uh, I can think of one client right now who, strictly through Marma, would improve tremendously and would be better for uh, days and weeks at a time, 
but would go back to old rhythms of behavior very quickly. And once that would happen, the uh, manifestations of tremors would come back. But yet she craved uh, doing and behaving in, in these other ways. And then would go, much like an alcoholic, would go through remorse, feelings of guilt and responsibility for these things, but unable to change. I've had many people that uh, have recovered to the point where they no longer walk with a cane, for example. I, I cannot say that I've had people that have uh, exhibited what would call a, a 100% recovery, but I've seen people that have come uh, huge orders of magnitude better from walking to uh, being able to uh, speak loss of tremor it sounds like that in part the individuals that found and exhibited the greatest improvement were individuals who were fully embracing responsibility to take action yes Taking action is uh, not so much what we do, it's our orientation to what is happening and how to do it. You know, uh, there's a, a uh, nice proverb from uh, Goethe. He said, uh, the moment one commits oneself, providence takes over. And though I wouldn't deny that's the case, I would go back to the functioning of the brain. And when resistance is strong, the capacity to find an alternative is not available because the, the, the channels are closed, if you will. Once we open ourselves to the possibility of change and acceptance that things are in a certain fashion, then within almost miraculous periods of time, short periods of time, we find that there's a remedy that comes along. In Ayurveda, there's a saying that there's nothing that is not medicine for someone. So remedies come in many forms, and they come first from an acknowledgement and an acceptance of where we're at and a desire to move from that place. They have to sort of come in that order. You can't just want to move because if you're doing that, the subtler message underneath is that I'm stuck. I can't move. And if you say I'm here and I'm here in the moment, then you know that maybe the moment seems a very long time, that it is a transitory thing. It isn't something that is forever. You know, we, we uh, going back to this notion of conditioning again, you know, we, we've, all of our lives, been conditioned to think that the world's problems can be solved in 27 minutes and three commercials. <laughs> and, the, you know, the crisis and the commercials are there, too. It's all resolved quickly. And if, if we look again at the model of, of disease being built up over time, nothing happened overnight. Nothing's going to leave overnight. But it all starts, all relief, all movement starts 
from acknowledging where one is at in that particular moment. And it doesn't require more than that. It's not morose. It's not feeling guilt. It's not feeling re- overly responsible. Responsible. It's just acknowledgement. This is what's going on. What would be your response to a person who came to see you and who was incredibly honest and open? What this person basically says over the course of the hour to 90-minute appointment is, I accept the fact that I have these current symptoms. You've told me to breathe in certain ways. That's a silly thing. I've been breathing all my life, and I'm not dead yet. You've talked about yoga. I tried that 10 years ago, and I got sore. I'm not doing that. You talked about meditation. I'm sorry. I'm too busy to do meditation. I've got business to attend to. I've got appointments to meet. You've given me some bags of herbs or suggested certain dietary kinds of things. That sounds like that's pretty strange food. I'm not doing that. What do you say to me then? Say love you. What what can you say? You know, uh, there's there's this uh, parable about the guy who's drowning, and he says, no, God is going to save me. I know it, I know it, I know it. The guy comes by in a boat. He offers to pull him in. He said, no, God is going to save me. I know it, I know it, I know it. Another guy comes by, offers to pull him out. He said, no, God is going to save me. I know it, I know it, I know it. Same with the third one. And he dies. He goes to heaven, and he's standing there in front of St. Peter, and he said, what happened? He said, what do you want? We sent a guy with a boat. We sent a guy with a canoe. <laughs> so, you know, you, you you can only do so much for someone, and if if people can't somehow accept that they have to make some changes, in order to exchange their experience for something else, then it won't go anywhere. At least in the relative sense of it. But the things are so easy to do. It doesn't require much. You know, meditation is 20 minutes twice a day. Most people waste more time than that in the morning deciding whether what they're going to eat for breakfast or what color socks to put on. <laughs> right. You know, uh, the, the breathing techniques take two to five minutes twice a day. You clearly indicated that it's taken quite a while for a person to exhibit neurological challenges. It's not going to be reversed quickly. People are going to always want to know, okay, what time frame are we talking about? If I fully embrace making the kind of changes that you're recommending or my practitioner is recommending, Am I talking about a time frame of six months, a year, two years, five years, ten years? Obviously, the answer differ, differs for depending on the particular individual, but is there a, a, a particular time frame that people ought to expect? I, I can say that, that people can experience changes within a matter of days or weeks. They build. They continue to build. I said this earlier, I think, that one of the beauties of the system is that it's self-validating. Usually I say that this is very much a science. It uses you as your own laboratory experiment. And you will validate whether it works or not. 
you just have to apply the experiments and see for the results. And usually people are willing to do that. And as I was saying before, the dogs interrupted us there, that um, it takes about 21 to 40 days to institute a new rhythm of behavior. And we, again, are, are very easily conditioned. We're conditioned by all sorts of things. We're conditioned to brush our teeth. And yet we know from a direct experience what our mouth feels like if we don't brush our teeth. And it's not so pleasant. It's very reinforcing. The same with these techniques. Applying them, there's benefit. You may have to learn to do them. But once you learn to do them, they become natural and secondhand, and you don't think much about it. Just do them. Just like brushing your teeth. Feels much better, reduces tooth decay, makes you more popular. So I just encourage people to uh, keep an open sense, not to uh, try to affirm something different than what their experience is, but not to uh, wallow in self-pity to take initiative and do something and observe what happens over time. In the body, you know, in Ayurveda we measure layers of tissue in the body. We, may, we have divisions of organs. We understand, you know, food is a very important part in Ayurveda because it's the easiest thing to manipulate. You know, it's, uh, it's the grossest form of our behavior. And fundamentally, we're taking things that are not us and incorporating them into the physiology. They are the building blocks of what become us. So we have uh, guidelines on eating, for example, that you don't uh, watch television and eat. You don't chew with your mouth open. You sip a little warm water while you're eating. You have light conversation. You don't eat when you're angry or upset. Eat only when you're hungry. Um, very, very simple things, things that your mother may have told you. And they have very, very profound effects if you do them. I, I know of no one who's done these things and hasn't said to me, thank you so much. You know, just these simple things on uh, being mindful of what I'm doing while I'm eating. You know, again, it's not a, a, a strenuous process of thinking, now I'm putting this strawberry in my mouth and it's making, you know, uh, nutrients for this part of my body or that or the other thing. No, it's just understanding that we're doing something as a gift from nature that creates our being, our physical being. And be attentive, attentive to that. Don't read, don't talk, don't chew with your mouth open, don't be angry, be simple, be kind, be appreciative of what you're doing, and eat fresh foods. So I, I think I've digressed from the, the, uh, the, 
the recalcitrant who doesn't want to do anything but yet comes for some advice. Again, the best thing is just to say, look, you know, you, you came here for some reason. See for yourself. Give it a fair shake. Don't try to uh, shortcut it. Be open-minded and see. You don't even have to suspend disbelief. Just, just see for yourself. So if people are willing to do that, they get results. Bar none. How interesting. Are there specifics to the dietary recommendations that people should be aware of? For example, an uh, individual who loves steak and potatoes, can they continue to eat that, or should they begin to change that habit? The simple word would be yes, to change it. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, reasons uh, to avoid eating beef, for example. Uh, eating lower on the food chain is generally better for many, many reasons. You know, if, if we look at just the organizing principles of nature, uh, a larger animal, what happens when we eat? Again, we're, we're taking things that are not us and incorporating them into us. If we look at the, the quality of the way the animal is treated, you know, one of the things that in Ayurveda we talk about is eliciting the memory of pure consciousness or eliciting that within that person, that memory, to reestablish health. And memory is something that we're losing dramatically in, in, in very, very fast order. We, uh, if you take a, a, a broiler chicken today, from egg to table or egg to harvest is less than two months. It's like 30 days. It's less than a month. It's a phenomenally short period of time for a genetically re-engineered re little chick to grow up fast enough to be put into your oven. It has no memory of anything but... Uh, living with thousands and thousands of others in a quote-unquote free-range environment that really means that they're not in a cage, but they're in a warehouse. So not only do you have the, the hormones and the antibiotics and the stress that that animal has experienced, you, you have a, uh, a tasteless product that has no memory of life in freedom and fulfillment in any form. The larger the animal, the more that's true. You know, if you've, if you've ever talked to a farmer who's uh, maybe got a, had a calf that uh, got him stuck in the farm pond and they couldn't get it out and they finally pulled it out with a tractor and it broke its neck, they generally won't eat that animal because the hormones from fear and uh, Anxiety have tainted the meat. Same with a hunter. If he's wounded an animal and has to chase, chase it a long time before killing it, the, the meat is tainted. It doesn't taste good. You know, we're, we're sensitive enough to experience the grossest aspects of it. We're also sensitive enough but have been conditioned not to, to accept it as true, the subtler aspects of it. We are what we eat. 
we are what we ingest. You know, fundamentally, we are uh, ingesting, manifesting uh, entities. We take from the environment, and we consume it, and we project it back out as our experience. So we want to put the best of possible foods within the body that we possibly can. Freshest, freest of hormones, freest of antibiotics, had a good life for eating meat. So, yeah, I would say that the first thing I would say is, yes, you have to change your diet and not be afraid to change your diet. Again, we think we're who we are is uh, based upon what we've done. It's not the case. And uh, yet if we want to change our experience, change what we're putting into this system. We'll be right back with Mark Keister after this short station break. You are connected to the Remarkable Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. This is the place to be in order to find information about options that are having remarkable success in helping individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's disease to reverse those symptoms. Parkinson's Recovery sponsors a free newsletter where you can find out information about all the recent options that are really making a huge difference for many, many individuals. It's easy to sign up for the newsletter. You go to the main website, parkinsonsrecovery.com. You'll see a little menu item up at the top of the simple page. It says newsletter. You click that. You put your email in, and I will send out to you announcements about the radio shows, announcements about Sunday Connections when I host those with questions and answers, announcements about all of our recent discoveries. So sign up for the free newsletter, and I promise to you your email address will be privileged and confidential. I do not give those out. I do not sell those. I do not in any way provide that information to anyone. Even when somebody asks me, do you have such and such person's email address, I do not give that email address out unless I have your explicit permission. So rest assured that that information is considered to be totally and completely confidential. I'm Robert Rogers, your host of Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. I've been working on conducting research on the factors that cause Parkinson's and the options that are helping people reverse their symptoms since 2004. A lot of what I've discovered through my interviews on the radio show happens to be captured in a recent revision to my book, Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease. And now back to the amazing Mark Mark Keister, everybody's going to want to know how can they get in touch with you to make an appointment and where are you located? Well, I practice in Europe, uh, primarily in France. Uh, we're in the process now of, of uh, we have a small uh, association and uh, we've just now uh, are acquiring property to start a school. We're working in conjunction with the government of India uh, and the World Health Organization to uh, train people uh, in the West on how to do these therapies and will meet standards that are set by the World Health Organization for the training. So um, if you wanted to contact me, 
Um, you can contact me at uh, Swastaveda, S-W-A-S-T-H-I-A-V-E-D-A dot com. Or my personal email address is Mark, M-A-R-K, the word Irish, I-R-I-S-H, the letter I, and the numbers 108 at ayur.fr, A-Y-U-R dot F-R. And I'd be happy to answer anything there. And if, if you needed to talk to me sometime soon, I'm in the U.S. at the moment, and we'll be here until October. Uh, my number here is area code 360-673-673. 1,005-1005. Is there a listing of practitioners that people can access to find out if there's a practitioner located near where they live? Well, uh, my best suggestion would be to contact the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I believe their number is area code 501 Two nine one, or excuse me, five zero five two nine one nine six nine eight, and they'll be able to help you that way. Give people a brief idea of how many people might have this very specialized and eloquent training. Are we talking about thousands and thousands of practitioners across the U.S., Canada, and Europe, or are we just talking about hundreds? Oh, I wish it were thousands. Right now, it's still about hundreds. I, I couldn't tell you how many. But uh, the Ayurvedic Institute is run by Dr. Vasant Lad, who is a marvelous teacher. He's been teaching for nearly 50 years. Um, and uh, we owe a lot to Dr. Vasant Lad for his help in reinvigorating Ayurveda and bringing it lively to the West as well as uh, you can check with uh, Maharishi Ayurveda, and I don't have an address for them, but uh, that is probably the pri the premier groups would be Maharshi Ayurveda and Dr. Vasant Lad. And you can find Maharshi, M-A-H-A-R-I-S-H-I, Ayurveda, and probably .com. What is the one point that you would like people to most remember about what we have discussed today? Learn to relax. Get rest. And, and seriously, just let go. There's, there's so much that can be uh, made available through one's own creative desire when one is not anxious. And I realize this is sort of a double bind for people because the disease generates more anxiety. But if you do things to control that, and that would be following, from an Ayurvedic perspective, a, a vata regimen, um, going periodically for uh, extended treatments. We didn't cover that very much, but there is a treatment regimen that's called Panchakarma. 
Pancha means five. Actions, karma means action. These are five actions that are done for cleansing the body and the mind that, uh, well, what they do is, is that they remove the buildup of toxicity within the tissues in a more uh, advanced way than we would do at home alone. So what we do at home alone is is mandatory for success. Panchakarma is uh, a, a system, again, that we can go and do in residence. Typically, it would be a minimum of seven days, optimally someplace around 20 or 21 days. So this is where there would be an expense for someone is to go for these extended periods of treatment. But as far as the day-to-day functionality, uh, you learn the techniques, you adopt the change in diet and that sort of thing, and away you go. Starting there is the key. Doing these other things uh, are great enhancers, going for panchakarma, etc. My best bet, uh, my best recommendation for that would be to say for people to go to India. And it's a little convoluted to do over the radio. So if people were interested in contacting me, I can refer them to physicians in India that offer these clinics for Panchakarma. Mark Keister, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us all about something that most people know very little about, but obviously offers incredible promise for relief from the neurological symptoms that they currently experience. You're quite welcome, Roger. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, and this is the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. The only two words you need to remember in order to be able to get access to the many free resources that I have created over the last eight years through Parkinson's Recovery is Parkinson's Recovery. That's the name of the website. So it's www.parkinsonsrecovery.com. The main website has links to the many other websites that we maintain. Need to talk with people? Need to chat with folks? Go to the chat room. It's free. Do you have questions that need to be answered? You'll find an amazing wealth of questions and answers and information on the Parkinson's Recovery blog. Interested in radio shows about certain topics that you're particularly interested in? You'll see a link to this very same radio page. You'll be able to go to that page and just a fair tip in advance. I've been airing the show for four years, so you have to scroll back on the radio show page, page after page. There are now 20 pages, and I think you'll be amazed at some of the shows that I've aired over the last three or four years. I assure you, some of the shows that were aired three or four years ago have information that is incredibly relevant and important for you to know today. I've captured much of what I've learned in a book called Road to Recovery from Parkinson's Disease. Reality is all of that information is readily available through the blog and through the radio show, so nothing that I've written is not available to you for free. And also, if you'd like to email me, please do so. That email is also easy to remember. If you can remember my first name, Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, at, and you guessed it, parkinsonsrecovery.com. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, 
all the men are handsome and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact that you have been listening to this radio show today, that you indeed are solidly on the road to recovery. May you have a magnificent week. I look forward to connecting with you on our next radio show. Good day.